Uh, we're going to turn to Matthew now uh, for our second reading, which is on page 941. Reading from chapter 9, verses 1 to 17. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is still with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Uh, let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, thank you that we can come together come together to hear your word. We pray that we would be encouraged, be strengthened, that we would be corrected, that we would be changed, that we would be enthused. We ask that you would lead us and teach us and keep me from error, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is a very well-known part of the Bible a very well-known story. It runs in the section which we've started from chapter 8 through to the end of chapter 9, and in it, it's a place where Jesus has full power of disease, demons, and death. And it's a place where we have seen that Jesus affirmed that the messianic age is here and that the word that's very key throughout this whole section is the word Follow. You can look, if you like, and see how many times we get follow in this section itself. 
It appears nine times in chapter 8 to the end of chapter 9. It's pretty key. Jesus has been telling us that he is the servant of Isaiah 53, but he's been combining that with also the Lord of the last days. For the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is here. It's been pretty amazing till now, and this is a pretty amazing section in itself. Firstly, from verses nine, verse, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, the paralyzed man. Jesus boards the boat that he came over in and crosses back over the lake, it tells us in verse 1, returning to Capernaum. It's his hometown. It's his own town. You might remember it's also the place where he called in chapter 4 his first disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. It's a fishing village, a fishing village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and archaeology tells us that in the first century, and so round about now, at this time, in that time, archaeology tells us that the population was about 1,500 people. That's not that big, is it? How many people in Woodford? Twelve. <laughs> so it's big compared to Woodford. There's 12. Are you sure there's only 12? <laughs> He's back on Israelite soil. Ask a silly question, get a silly answer. Back on Israelite soil, another person he meets is one who emerges from the shadow of death. Remember, we cross the lake into the Gentile territory with that in mind that Jesus has come to be light, shining in the darkness for the people under the shadow of death. And we cross back, we find a man who actually is another one in the shadow of death. Verse 2, some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. That's a strange sentence. Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, when you're a clergy person like myself or others in the room who shall remain nameless, you are always drawn to the, that, that little line, Your sins are forgiven. We're always drawn to that. But I want you to notice two other words as well, heart and son. Paralysis is regarded as being near death, particularly in this world. Jesus has healed someone like this before in chapter 8, verse 6. It was the centurion's servant, and the centurion is a Gentile, remember that he's a guy who is not part of God's kingdom, but Jesus healed him and he was the one who had great faith. These, this man is brought by people who are pretty hoping, pretty full of faith, we think, hoping that Jesus will heal him. We're not sure. But we too, as we read along, have some expectations of what will happen here. So when Jesus says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven, we're surprised. It's a surprise. We've expected to say, 
get up or you're healed or in the centurion Jesus didn't even meet the servant he didn't have to go there he just said it he told the centurion and away he went knowing that the servant was healed the people of Israel seem more receptive as we come back and here they are and we wonder will their faith match the centurion the centurion is a is a gentile he's a scum and filth and all that we don't like him that's the way they would have thought but he had great faith because God was working and God has started working in the person of his son who has come and Matthew draws our attention to this in verse 3 which is not in the NIV it's annoying because it actually starts and behold and when Matthew says a word like behold he means take notice and so that's what he's saying behold some of the teachers of the law said to themselves this fellow is blaspheming Jesus perceived their thoughts we're told verse 4 why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts heard that word before which is easy to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk Jesus question is interesting why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts the paralytic man had been told to take heart and he was called son here there is evil in their hearts and these guys the teachers of the law who are there are not sons they are not followers if that's been the key word the key idea the thing that we've wanted to see they're not it Israel's heart problem will come again in chapter 12 verses 34 and chapter 15 Jesus explains his actions using a question Watch, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk Jesus demonstrated that he was not just a healer here and it seems to be the reason for this whole episode he's not just a healer did you realize there are actually a whole bunch of people running around at his time claiming to be healers Jesus distinguishes himself here he's not just a healer but a divine healer the healing shows that the end time powers of the son of man has come he has the right to forgive sins who has the right to forgive sins when we pray did we pray a confessional prayer this morning I wasn't here did we do that I hope we did that Bill we did that why did we do that we did that because we asked God to forgive us forgive us our sins who do we ask God when Jesus says your sins are forgiven then we know who he is don't we 
But if we can imagine ourselves being there, we would be stunned because he's saying he is God. He has the right to forgive sins. Isaiah had promised in Isaiah chapter 40, you might also find it in Zechariah chapter 13, that forgiveness would come to Israel. John the Baptist, if we remember back in chapter 3, had prepared for prepared us to hear this, that Jesus would provide forgiveness. What's new is that the Son of Man has that authority, the authority to forgive. And in, we've matched this with that idea from Daniel 7. The Son of Man was given as he comes up not down, up to the ancient of days, meaning God, he's given the kingdom of heaven. And so here, the Son of Man, the one who has the kingdom of heaven, forgives. So the Son of Man would open this forgiveness, not just to Israel, he tells in verse 6, but to the world. I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. When the man got up and went home, but when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Interesting. Here we are, the group are filled with awe or fear is another way to understand awe. And that's a valid response when you are faced with God. That's a normal response as we read the Old Testament. When God appears in any form, the people who they appear to often fall down. Why do they fall down? Well, sort of a worship thing, but actually it's actually because it's in fear. And so the response here is exactly supporting what the text is saying. When you are faced with God, you know his presence. They glorified God and said the long-awaited time of forgiveness has arrived. And so in the next section, when we go from verses 9 to 13, we meet, it's no surprise that this call is to sinners. No surprise. Matthew, our second point. Matthew, the tax collector, from verses 9 to 13. It says, Jesus went on from there and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Do you like tax time? Has it been tax time for you? If you smile, have you been? Have you done it? Anyone want to say that they've done their tax yet? I haven't found anyone who's done their tax yet. Someone there? Yes, we've got one. I haven't. That's because I've got a, I, I don't, I'm not getting a refund. I don't want to do my tax. <laughs> Is that why you approach tax time? Do you like the tax collector? Do we like the taxation department? Do you feel good about them? We still don't like them, don't we? Have we ever liked them? The answer is no. Matthew 
is a tax collector for the Romans. He is scum. Worse than that, well, maybe not as worse, but anyway, it just as bad, he works for Herod the Great's son. Do you know Herod the Great's son? Do you know what his name is? Herod Antipastor? Is that right? Is that right? Sorry, it's Antipas. Sorry, Antipas. A-N-T-I-P-A-S. I have no idea. I, I pronounced this this morning. I said Antipas in front of someone. And, of course, that's, that's a very Australian way to say his word. So the, I had an English gentleman in the congregation and he laughed. <laughs> Us cute colony people. Herod the Great is the one, of course, who pursued Jesus' birth. But if you work for Herod, or Herod Antipas in this case, you ask him because he's not liked. And so when Matthew is there, ugh, who is this guy? Matthew responds, and he surprisingly responds in a familiar way to the way the fishermen did back in chapter 4, Verse 18, follow me, he told, Jesus told him. Matthew got up and followed him. These disciples, as you might remember, as Jesus calls these disciples, they are the start of the last day's community, the community of Israel, because time is short. Repent now for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent while you can. And who is joining? A tax collector. Scum. Sinner. He's invited. And more than that, he follows. Wow. Just when, as the disciples, come follow me, so he follows. This leads to the dinner scene in verse 10, a very famous dinner scene. Jesus is having dinner at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees see that Jesus eats at, of all people, a tax collector's house. And there are a whole bunch of this type of swill with them. That's the way they think. How could he eat with them? Why is the question in verse 11? Why is he eating with them? He should know what they are like. He should stay a long way away from them. That's what they're saying. That's what they think. And verses 10 and 11, as you read it, is very repetitive. Don't you find that? Matthew's house were many tax collectors and sinners. And then the question comes, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's very wearing, I find, this sort of repetitiveness, but it actually grabs our attention. 
And that's what Matthew wants you to see. He wants you to know tax collectors and sinners, they are a problem, say the Pharisees. And Matthew wants you to see the dilemma. They're at the same table as a guy who is a holy man. That's a problem for them. There, the Pharisees are staggered. And Jesus' response is key. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It's a metaphor. Do you know what a metaphor is? Does anyone explain what a metaphor is? I can't. I just asked. I'm just a silly person who asked the question. It just, it represents what's going on. Who needs a doctor? The sick. Lots of people. Who do you, do you like the doctor? Anyone like the doctor? Does anyone like the dentist? Why do you keep away from the dentist? They hurt. Do you need to go to the dentist? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> when you do need, where do you go? The dentist. When you need them, boy, are they good. The same thing with the doctor. Who needs the doctor? The sick. The sick need the doctor. And Jesus is quite clear in saying what he's saying. The previous scene has associated healing with forgiveness. And now Jesus ties that together in his story, his metaphor. The healing miracles are metaphors for forgiveness. The Messiah is here to forgive sins because of a world that is in the grip of sin and death. We know that the, the Gentiles live in the shadow of sin and death. What we're finding is that the righteous who think they're righteous, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, actually are in the grip of that same sin and death. The Messiah is here to heal. And when he means heal, he means forgive. Forgive sins. This will play out on a grand scale, of course, on the cross, on Jesus' cross, where we need to be prepared, though, that here the Messiah has brought the kingdom of heaven, the final day is coming when disease and death will be gone forever. And the Pharisees, he says to them, go away and learn mercy and not sacrifice. He quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 there. It's Jesus' concern. And we have that in our mind as we read forward. But you'll find in chapter 12, 7, that's jumping ahead, Chapter 12, verse 7, that the Pharisees have not learnt that lesson. But the meal in itself is an illustration. It's a metaphor. I like that word today. It's a metaphor for what God is doing in the person of Jesus, his mission. Jesus, the doctor, mingles, calls and heals the sick. 
bringing forgiveness to those who need it. But he also wants to say that it is the new thing. In verses 14 to 17, John the Baptist are drawn into this. Why do we, you, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus again answers in two parables. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, he says? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. Have you ever been to a wedding? Have you ever been to a wedding where there wasn't enough food? Boy, that was a pl- I have. <laughs> I remember once, it was a cheap wedding. You know, put it in wedding on the cheap. You held it in the here and then you go over and put it over here and there wasn't enough food. And people were continually running out trying to buy pizzas to get them and fill people up. I wasn't too happy that day. But normally, weddings are great times of rejoicing. Fasting is associated with mourning. Jesus is saying the sun is present, so it's a time just like a wedding. It's a rejoicing time, a time where people are filled with joy. And the disciples, while they have Jesus, will rejoice, not fast. But he tells them, thinking about after his death, there will be a time where they will mourn. I don't think he means there'll be a time when fasting will be normal, but that's perhaps up to debate, but in my decision, it's not. What he's saying is that time of mourning will come. And Jesus emphasises that this is a new time in verses 16 to 17. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine is put into the new wine skins. And so both are preserved. This new thing in Jesus is saying, I have arrived. This forgiveness of sins is new it cannot be contained by the old because as we've been seeing god apocalyptically has been speaking and remember we said apocalyptic means reveal doesn't mean horrible things and arnold schwarzenegger fighting those sort of things it means god speaks and reveals what's actually going on in the world God has been speaking and telling us that he, Jesus has come to fulfill, fulfill what all the Old Testament had hoped for and promised. It's new. It's not an addition, it's not an addition to the old. It's not a slight tweak to the old, but it is radically new. Jesus has brought in this new age and it will be not squeezed into the old and you can't patch the old because this is new. Jesus is saying the new has come and it surpasses the old. 
Weddings, rejoicing, new wine, new cloth are all images of that new age in the Old Testament. That final age where God has come and will reign. Jesus is saying, that age has arrived in me. It is the age where we will be called sons. It'll be the age that we are forgiven. It is the age where we are become vessels of new wine. God's spirit poured into us that we might be his people. Called from far and wide, not just a special people, but gathered from all nations, every tongue and every name that will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus is saying that age has come. And we live in that age. It still continues today. We know that Jesus comes and that he dies. He dies on the cross for us that our sins might be taken to the cross, punished at the cross for us. My goodness, isn't that new? When the Son of God would step into my place, into your place, and take away from me, take away from you, the problem of sin and death, and give us life. Life, life to the full. That is the message that Jesus has come. That is the message that he has given. And that is the message you embraced and I embraced. We embrace that message because God embraced you, me. We know that message because God speaks to us, to you. To me. God has poured his spirit into us because of his love for you, for me. And we rejoice that he is that king. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we praise you and thank you that uh, we have a great message. We know your great message. We pray that we would be a great message. We pray that you would release our world from the, the pain and punishment of sin and death, which we are all held captive by, unless we have been freed by your love. We praise you and thank you that in Jesus this age has dawned and has come, and we are beneficiaries of it. We praise you and thank you that Jesus came for all people, but particularly for us sinners. We thank you that he calls us to be your people and makes us your people and holds us to yourself because of his faithfulness because of his covenant on the cross. We thank you that we exist in this new relationship. Hold us, we pray. Transform us, we ask. Make us more like Jesus, we ask, that we might be better servants, 
more faithful servants, people who speak and live and love your truth. We pray all of this rejoicing in his name. Amen.